Longbox Crusade presents Monthly Monday Movie Buckabout because the podcasting world needs yet another movie review show. I am Rick, also known as Not Jeff from Jeff and Rick Presents, and as you have heard me say numerous times now, I am a movie lover. I've got this giant collection of movies, and I love to talk about movies with my friends. But every now and again, I find a movie that they haven't seen that I have, and that means we gotta watch it and see what they think of it. This time, I've got another old friend of mine. We've known each other a long time, since about seventh grade, no, eighth grade, eighth grade, eighth grade, eighth grade. This is the guy who actually introduced me to one of my favorite movies, Highlander. So that gives you an idea about what our taste level is. (laughs) But besides that, besides that, we have seen so many movies together. Most of the movies that I have done on this podcasting adventure have been movies I have seen with him. But this is my friend, Matt Johnson. Matt, how are you doing, sir? On a scale of one to 10, I'm doing all right. All right. Excellent. Excellent. We've known each other since about eighth grade. We've done theater together. We've seen lots of movies together. We used to have a fun little thing we'd do with all of our friends where we'd get together. We'd rent a handful of movies from local video store. And then we'd see how far we get through those bad movies before somebody called it quits. That about right? Yeah, it was pretty routine there for several years to end up at Movie Madness in Portland, going into that mystery back room and trying to pick stuff off the shelf and... There were some real stinkers over the years. Complete buying, specifically what the cover was. Uh, Hey, look, I've got a cop that's holding a severed hand. This looks like a good movie for tonight, guys. Those were sentences that were spoken. (laughs) That and cash money that people spent on movies featuring Burt Reynolds. (laughs) Slight call out there. No names. No names. No names. No names. names. Just wondering if cash money listens. Don't know if he does. But... If he does, then he's heard his name. Then he knows who he is. There we go. So what is your favorite flavor of movies? Horror movies. By leaps and bounds, it's horror movies. I know that we kind of delved in that going into our late, our mid-30s, but when did you really, what was kind of the turning point for you of, of really getting into a lot of the horror movies? As soon as I was old enough to rent stuff without my parents having to be there. It <laughs> basically started in high school, Going down to Albertsons, it was three movies, three days, $3. Albertsons used to have a video rental wall. And Mm -hmm. catching up on a lot of movies I wasn't allowed to watch. I grew up in a household where things had to be Disney or PG was kind of typically the edgiest my mom would uh, tolerate. And so I got quite a few movies that I just hadn't been able to see because... Our rating was not acceptable for small minds. Not that my mind was much bigger by this point. They had a fair mix of horror movies get added in there. And my mom would always fuss at me that I couldn't watch them with my younger siblings in the room. And I was like, well, then they shouldn't be in the room. <laughs> we were in agreement. <laughs> so that really started it. And then, of course, there's a mutual friend of ours who he is a horror movie buff from going way, way back. He really helped me broaden my horizons in our early 20s, mm-hmm. pulling out some Italian horror, pulling out some pretty classic movies. Back when I was a small child, we walked into the video rental store and I stared at the VHS covers going, what is that? I so want to see it. Mom, can I? Oh, nope. That's going to be a hard no. You know, getting by with the help from a, from a friend. Got to really see some good stuff. And then it's just been pursuing what's popular, what's not popular, what are people recommending, what are people saying it's so bad you have to see it, and occasionally still pulling back the covers to 
peak it, you know, it's, it's so bad. Everybody hates it. And there have been a few movies that I've turned off. Finally, I'm old enough now. I can do that. <laughs> yeah. It's we're you're not stuck in a room with a bunch of guys drinking pretty cheap beer. No, uh, no, we didn't drink to, cheap beer, try, sir. No, we, we did. We, we did not. We did we, one, one or two people, one or two people drank cheap beer. The rest of us drank pretty good beer yeah, at that point in time. Yeah. Uh, but we sitting in a room with, with people drinking beer, just challenging each other to see, you know, what movie we, I mean, there's bad movies. We tur- we did not turn off, but we could not make it through Batman and Robin again. So uh, we have standards. I, I, I get to brag <laughs> that I've never watched that piece of film. Yeah. Yeah. In yeah. my life. I don't remember if you were there the last time we tried to turn that on. I, I, I think it was, there was one point we tried to turn it on. I think we made it about five minutes into the film before we're like, nope, can't do it. Well, one of the things but. we figured out with bad movies is they have to be so bad they're entertaining for yes. all the wrong reasons. Yeah. So many bad movies are just bad, boring. And yeah. we, we it, it sadly took us a little too long to figure it out. But eventually, we figured out that bad, boring had to go and it, and it had to actually entertain one of the things that's been happening with uh, digital cameras becoming more and more prolific and cheaper is anybody can get a camera and anybody can make a movie now. Yeah. And a lot of people are intentionally setting out to make the next great campy bad movie. And the majority of those fail because what they don't understand is the people who made that campy bad movie didn't know they were making a campy bad movie. They thought they were making a movie. Here, here's a hint for you to go into a movie store or go or, or go online and try to stream a good bad movie. First thing you do is you look for Canon films. That's mm-hmm. that is the stamp of excellence right there. That is a group of people who are going out to make a good movie did not make it and instead made something that is pretty enjoyable to watch most of the time. <laughs> I would I would never accuse Canon films of making a good movie. They were no, just making no. the next movie. Yes, and that movie yes. had to make enough money to make the movie after the that. The next movie, yes. Uh, what really hurt them was when they actually landed a couple of pretty big hits. They thought they could wade into deeper waters, and they drowned. They drowned. But we are not going to talk about a canon movie this time. We're going to talk about another movie. Going back to your love of horror movies, you gave me a really curated list of movies for me to choose from, specifically in the horror genre, which is great because... This was a little bit of a challenge for me. I was kind of interested to see how many of those I had seen that you had not. And I luckily was able to find a couple. But from that list you gave me, I decided to choose 1986's The Fly by David Cronenberg. This stars Jeff Goldblum, Gina Davis, John Getz, and a few other peoples, including a uh, little bit part by David Cronenberg as well. Why haven't you seen this movie before? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a collection of small reasons. I don't have a major this is my barrier to this movie goldblum as a leading man has never worked well for me he's an amazing character actor i love him you know when when he brings kind of a a side part to the movie and just you want somebody who's compelling interesting brings depth uh i have a hard time taking him seriously uh as a leading man and that's a personal taste thing. That's no slight on him. That's no slight to fans of his. The man's a legend for a reason. You know, tons of love to Jeff Goldblum. And then it's, the, I mean, just the other thing is I find a lot of Cronenberg movies don't live up to the hype for me. And Cronenberg fans are now right, you know, they're home preparing to introduce <laughs> me to personal body horror. 
but <laughs> don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. We won't put your contact information on this. All the hate mail will come to oh, me. Good. It's good. okay. It's okay. Nice, nice. I mean, I've seen this before, definitely, but I've I've seen a few of other Cronenberg movies. I'm sure we watched a few of them together because I know Mario, our friend, he really enjoyed those movies as well. There's another movie early in his canon, Rabbit. We I know we watched that as a group for sure, and I believe we watched Scanners as a group. I think so. I think so. So I know we'd seen a, quite a few of them though. Yeah, it's it's. I I mean, I have seen some of his stuff. The work he has done with Viggo Mortensen, I absolutely love. Yeah, but those are not horror movies, and those are not sci-fi movies. Those are really just of a different stripe. And part of that, of course, is just I find Viggo Mortensen amazing to watch. Well, let me ask you this then: what what do you know about this movie? I I, I know the gimmick. The man does the experiment and gets mixed with a fly and starts becoming mm. a fly. I know there's a scene where uh, Jeff Goldblum is kneeling naked and stands up in a bunch of strategic steam and fog because they use that in most of the trailers. Yeah, I mean, it's just mostly what I know is the kind of the pop culture references and jokes about it. So it was never a movie that held a lot of draw for me. Well, this will be interesting because it the list that you gave me did put this comparatively high on its ranking. I think it was in its about... 20 or 30 spot, I believe, from that list that you you had. It's held up over time for in some circles, but it's going to be very interesting to see what you think about it and what we think about it once we watch the movie. And I think at this point in time, we spent a lot of time, more time than usual, talking about this. I'm going to let you go to watch the movie. We are going to listen to that trailer that you alluded to. Of course, you aren't going to be able to see those scenes. You're going to just be able to hear them. Anyways, we'll go ahead and do that trailer, and when we come back, we'll talk about The Fly from 1986. I think you're making a mistake. I think you really want to talk to me. Sorry, I have three other interviews to do before this party's over. Yep, they're not working on something that'll change the world as we know it. They say they are. Yeah, but they're lying. There is a limit, even to the imagination. Human teleportation, molecular decimation, breakdown, and reformation is inherently purging. Our greatest creations meet our deepest fears. Something went wrong, Seth. When you went through, something went wrong. You are about to go beyond that limit. Those weird hairs that were growing out of your back, I had them analyzed. But they were definitely not human. If you saw how scared and angry and desperate he is... I'm sure Typhoid Mary was a very nice person, too, when you saw her socially. No! You're afraid to be destroyed and recreated, aren't you? You're changing, Seth. Everything about you is changing. Oh, no. What's happening to me? Am I dying? I want to know what's going on. What does the disease want? What's to turn me into something else? Oh, no. A fly got into the transmitter pod with me that first time when I was alone. Don't go back to it. It could be contagious. Uh, I'm afraid! Don't be afraid! No. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Help me. Please. Help me. And we are back. 
we had an opportunity to sit down and watch The Fly from 1986. And before I give my friend Matt a chance to talk about the film, I want to just give a quick synopsis for those of you not brave enough to watch this Dave Cronenberg classic. Seth Brundle has been locked in his lab working on perfecting a teleportation system, but he is flummoxed by its inability to deal with living subjects. After meeting a reporter for a science magazine, Seth stumbles onto a solution and teaches his computer to understand flesh. After a night of drinking, he decides to try out the teleporter. Unfortunately, a fly enters the pod and the two are merged. Slowly, a metamorphosis occurs, changing him physically, mentally, and emotionally. His moods and appearance drive away his new reporter girlfriend, who discovers she is pregnant with his child. So Matt, first time watching this film, you had some thoughts going into it. What were your impressions? How did it meet up with your expectations? How did it meet up to my expectations? I think my general impression walking away from the movie is just it was really uneven. Yeah, I can see that. That, that was just overall. <laughs> the movie kind of picks up momentum once he teleports himself and gets fused with the fly. Mm-hmm. Everything before that feels like Cronenberg doesn't know how everyday life works and how everyday people actually talk or interact or go about their day. The The first what is that third of the movie? Yeah, just uh, that was that was a bit of a slog to get past. It re- was reminding me of some of those early 90s, late 80s video capture horror games that used to be out where you had these setups where they were really working with that video capture technology and trying to incorporate it into video games. And you had these really thin setups where they're trying to do, introduce you to a world of people who interact and talk. And it's literally just one or two rooms in a strip mall. And these are these, and they're a group of people who would never see each other outside of work. And yet that is all you see is just those small group of people. Yeah. It's uh, as far as you can tell in this movie, there's only three people in the world. Yeah. The opening scene at the party. I don't know who's responsible for the dialogue there. (laughs) I don't know if that's the original screenwriter or if that's Cronenberg. Cronenberg's name is not listed as a writer on the film, but I guess one of the factoids I bumped into looking for this movie is that Cronenberg threw out 75 to 85% of the screenplay and rewrote Mm -hmm. it. Yeah. But just all of the dialogue, I'm like, this is not how people speak to each other. Everything sounds like it's trying to be a witty line or... This is somebody's idea of clever dialogue, and and it was real, real bad. (laughs) The hardest part for me for that first section probably was them selling me on the idea that these two people were falling in love with each other, or that she found this guy really that interesting. Yeah. Because they did a great job of showing that Brundle, Seth Brundle, was the absolute square, that he is not that interesting at all. He has designed his life to be as boring as possible so he could think of these cool, wonderful things, and, and he's got an idea he wants to create. But as far as interpersonal relationships, he is nothing. He is he is a blank page, and they set him up to be that way. I think they did a great job of showing it, but you're kind of left with going, why did she go home with this guy? Mm-hmm. I, there is nothing charming or interesting about him. Well, I felt bad for Gina Davis because she was really trying her best with what they put on the page for her. Whoever wrote that part doesn't understand women at all. Mm-mm. And it's in one scene, she's just blowing him off like an annoying jerk. The next scene, she's there because she's an opportunist looking for just this scoop of a story that he might be sitting on. She's mm-hmm. just playing him at that point. And then in the next scene, she's fallen head over heels for him for no reason right and her character was probably the most inconsistently written uh followed closely by her boss oh yeah yeah 
I was having trouble following his, he had a meandering kind of, of part as well. I think that his role was actually about two or three roles that they put together. He, you know, at the beginning, he's, he's stalker and kind of. At the very beginning, he's a good boss saying, you don't have a good story here. You've got supposition. Go and find a better story for us to do. And then he turns into a stalker guy, and then he turns into his her best friend, and then he turns into kind of a savior. Yeah, and he's a stalker guy for a lot of the movie. Uh, that that's yeah. that's the one note that they wrote into that part and gave that actor to play is just that. And and this looking back, I'm like, ah, this was a trope that definitely still hung around in the '80s. You just terrorize a woman enough, and she'll go for you or you'll get her back or something like that. It was a shorthand to make somebody a bad guy. Yes. And yet at the same time, they use him as almost a savior yes. in this movie, yes. which is yeah. At the, at the end, he white knights and busts in to save her. And I'm like, I, <laughs> it just doesn't work. It just doesn't work at all. <laughs> like I said, I, I think that originally I could see that it being two or three different characters that they decided, well, we're going to save time. We're just going to tie it into one. Uh, those two, three characters are separate for a reason. Yeah. None, none, none of it really quite fit together. I think the way maybe it was intended. Mm -hmm. And so the, 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 the writing really drags most of the movie down. So let's talk about some of the high points. Was there high points that you got out of this movie? The effects are fantastic. Yeah. I was so happy just seeing the practical effects, seeing kind of the amazing level of quality in the practical effects. I didn't bother to look up who did them. I probably should have taken a look. Yeah, Academy Award winning makeup was designed actually by Chris Wallace Incorporated. They have done things on E.T., Return of the Jedi, Gremlins, Dragon Slayer, House, uh, both Fly movies, Arachnophobia, Naked Lunch. So yeah, they were, that was their kind of shtick back then in doing those kinds of special effects yeah yeah the effects were and another thing that was really really good the makeup effects during the transition mm -hmm. where you see seth start becoming the fly before he actually goes full monstrous but he starts looking splotchy and sick and getting hairs here and there there was a lot that from the you know the horror movie elements that that worked it just felt like this movie couldn't decide if it actually wanted to be a horror movie or if it just wanted to kind of be horror adjacent. When it wanted to be a horror movie, it went full steam on it and they pulled some really good horror elements and a couple of really good jump scares. I definitely agree with you on the makeup and the effects part of it because they were effective even for being something early or mid 80s type of a movie it really shows you what you could do with the practical effects over the special effects yeah well in the 80s was a golden age for practical effects in horror i mean you had movies like the thing mm -hmm. you know that's kind of like the poster child example of how good practical effects could be you know and, and it's the 90s practical effects were still around but they started dabbling in cgi more and then there's some really bad cgi was done and then they got better at that, and then they started to rely on it too much. Yeah. There's actually been a push in movies to bring back practical effects, or if you're going to do CGI, do at least part of it practical, and then use CGI to kind of... Emphasize or, or help it. Yeah, to kind of kind of hide the hide the rough edges. Well, it's, it's out of the horror realm, but 
It's one thing I'm watching right now. I'm watching The Mandalorian. And I think that that is a fantastic example of where they're using the practical effects, uh, the old school, you know, Star Wars, George Lucas effects with just the right amount of CGI that's in there. And I think The Mandalorian is one of those things that is using it very well again. Yeah. Well, the my understanding is uh, pretty much every shot of the child is practical. Yeah. You talked a bit about the the makeup and effects and some of the great scenes there. Was there any good scenes that just made you really jump or you got a good, that good scare element out of? No, <laughs> the, the, the movie never lulled me into, <laughs> into being surprised by anything. The movie plays more like once he starts becoming the monster, it's, it becomes more of a Gothic tragedy. He's not a monster we're afraid of. There is a funny gag of the part where he goes out to the bar and he, and he sits down and he arm wrestles the guy and it has the most gratuitous arm snap that I think I recall seeing. <laughs> but that, <laughs> because I never found the movie frightening or tense, that to me played more mm -hmm. funny. When I watched it, it was kind of one of those, I knew it was coming again and I, it's been a while since I've rewatched it, but I knew it was coming. I was expecting it and I watched it. I still went, Oh, man, what's up with that? I mean, it, it still made me go back in my seat a little bit, just like, yeah. oh, that was good. I enjoyed that. That was fun. Okay, that's a little ridiculous, but it's just the right over the top, and it's just the right, ah, that it it still made me go back in my chair just a little bit. It's like, yeah, it, it's one of those moments where your arm hurts a little bit seeing it happen. Yeah, yeah. There, there's, there, you, you can tell they switched to a prosthetic arm but it still creates a visceral reaction because your mind takes you there of that moment of what if I broke my arm that bad? Yeah. So it's kind of watching, like watching the, um, uh, the famous curb stomping scene oh. from American oh. history X. Oh, it, it makes your teeth oh. hurt. Yeah. It just makes your teeth hurt to see that. I, I still remember when we watched that, uh, when you were living down in Ashland, and Elizabeth, you, me, and Mario were there. And all of us just went into a fetal position holding on to our jaws watching that film. Oh, that movie. Oof. Yeah, that, 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 was, that, that movie's an event. Yes. Actually, now that I think about it, there is a really effective kind of body horror scene. And of course, Cronenberg was known for his body horror. Mm -hmm. Her dream sequence when she gives birth. That, I was like, wow, this movie was actually made to try to appeal to a more commercial, more general audience. This was uh, my understanding is Cronenberg mm -hmm. was trying to have a crossover film, you know, keep his fans, but, you know, get out in front of the masses. And that scene, uh, I'm not going to say what happens in that scene <laughs> for people who haven't seen the movie. Uh, we already gave away the arm snap, but that scene was probably the most effective scene in the movie for me as far as just like, that was the moment where I was completely invested in everything that was going on <laughs> that as it's happening you're like you, you're just going along with it a little bit and then there's a moment you make the crossover like is this a dream sequence i'm thinking this might be a dream sequence and then it goes into the entire body horror type of an element and you're you're kind of taking a stop and saying this is creepy this is disturbing this is all in and it's and if nothing else it finally it does show you the fear and terror that Gina Davis's character actually has. There is real fear and terror that she has in, in those moments. Yes. A again, it's one of the, the moments where her character kind of gets the best. Mm -hmm. Like she's, she's the most human of everybody on film in that. Yeah. Where, whereas in so much of the rest of the movie, everybody feels like they're acting and it feels like writing. You know, that's a moment where that's very grounded. There's one other kind of classic, well-known scene in this as far as the body horror and graphicness and that is where 
she first confronts him after he has started. He's in like phase two or three of his Brundle fly. She really sees what's happening to him. And he tries to eat in front of her. And it goes disgusting. And then his ear falls off. And apparently, according to the Tribune, as WHM calls it, this is one of those moments where they were doing the effect in front of Gina Davis, and her reaction was real. She was really shocked and scared when the ear fell off. And so her look on her face is genuine, like, oh, my gosh, this oh. is terrifying. <laughs> oh, that's, see, that's fantastic, because I, I, I thought the scene was just comedic gold. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I again, I, I watch a lot of horror movies, yeah. and I'm a little inured to some of these things. I could never buy... Uh, the the whole movie, I could not buy Jeff Goldblum at any point. Never once did he take me in as anything other than, oh, this is Jeff Goldblum acting like this. And <laughs> this is Jeff Goldblum acting like that. And he's one of those actors who, no matter what he does, it's Jeff Goldblum doing this. For me. Okay. Others may disagree entirely. There may be examples that uh, prove I am entirely wrong. But the majority of what I've seen over the years, it's just... Jeff Goldblum in different clothes. I can buy that. I still, personally for me, I liked his performance in this. I will admit that it is Jeff Goldblum playing X, Y, and Z. I think he invests himself pretty deep into the role of, I am a disgusting monster, and he he goes it. He sells that as that's what it is. It's still him being a disgusting monster. But he is not afraid to go 100% Jeff Goldblum into the role. He's not doing it half measures at all, which I appreciate. He, I am going to play this role. I am going to chew the scenery as much as I possibly can doing this role. And I'm going to have fun doing it. Yeah. You could tell he was having fun. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was really having a good time. At least it appears. And I, I think that's a big piece of it, too, is that it, maybe it's not as serious of a, of a part for him, but he's having fun doing it. And Well, and he puts in the work. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't want to take any... I don't want to take anything away from the effort he did, from the work he put in, from the characterizations he builds for the character, the transitions of the characters, scene by scene, what he does. He's working his butt off so much so that he actually became a different human being to do all the gymnastics. Even (laughs) I liked how they did the placing of that scene when they did the gymnastics. It's like, okay, that's not him. That's not that actor doing that. But you know what? (laughs) Bravo on you, film. Bravo on you. I like it. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> it that the, the 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 gymnastic scene makes me think of this gag in Family Guy where Stewie is supposed to run and jump out of a window of a like a like a fourth story window and then fall down and like hit a hit a canopy and then bounce down and Stewie runs down the hallway, jumps through the window. They cut to outside of the window. And it's clearly like a fat stunt guy wearing a Stewie bald wig (laughs) going through the window. And it's just, that was the level of believability I got out of the gymnastics scene. I I looked at it and said, man, they got somebody who's really good at gymnastics to do that. And I'm impressed with what I'm seeing them do. It's not Jeff Goldblum or his character, but I like what that gymnastics person is doing on that bar. It's pretty cool looking. (laughs) Yeah, it was, it was, it it, it was, uh, that was a fantastic moment in the movie. But again, that was a fantastic moment kind of for the wrong reasons. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What else did you enjoy? What what other pieces of this film did you enjoy? I did enjoy the whole part where where he is the monster and becoming kind of worse and worse 
and descending into that. He's, he's struggling for a cure, mm-hmm. try, you know, trying to figure out what happened. Of course, he just poses a question to the computer. The computer thinks about it and gives him a solution, as computers were wont to do in the 80s. <laughs> I, I, I was typing up my notes, and then it came to the part where, like, oh, it's voice recognition technology working perfectly back in the 80s. Really? That's some science fiction right there, because let me tell you, I, I'm screaming out my echo from across the room, and, and, and I'm not getting anything going on, so... <laughs> Well, and, and computers in the 80s, it's just, you just pose them a hypothetical. Sure. They think about it for a while. It's one of the best examples, of course, is war games. Yeah. Just the, the computer that just, you know, could think everything through for you. And I was just like, oh, Lord. <laughs> war games, they give you some, a lot of setups. Like, this was this guy's work. He built this. I mean, th- that's what war games is. Well, war games is about this awesome, sweet computer. Right. It's a supercomputer. Yeah, super well. This is a movie not about this supercomputer. This is a movie about this really cool device he's built. Oh, yeah. He also built this, like, supercomputer. Yeah. Yeah, he, he really upgraded the software on his computer yeah. a lot. <laughs> but I did enjoy the, the, you know, the whole sequence of the movie, basically. Once he starts becoming the monster forward, that part is definitely a ride. Mm-hmm. That's enjoyable to go on. The, the Oh, my gosh. They were really setting up, you know, him as Quasimodo late in the movie. Yeah. Hopping around in the rafters and stuff like that. Uh, I was waiting for him to start yelling sanctuary <laughs> it's, at one point. It's a bit of Quasimodo. There's a little bit of Frankenstein in there. It's, you know, modern yep. Prometheus. It's a little bit of Elephant Man. You know, am, am I really a man? He's saving all of his pieces. Uh, he wants to rebuild himself. Yeah, it's very, I mean, it, it, it it's very much a gothic horror yes. at, at that point. It succeeds at being that. And then, of course, at the end, the hero guy has to charge in with the authorities and white knight his way through things and it's supposed to be this tragic outcome and the ending just for me it, it's it's exactly the ending you get in that type of story uh-huh. but the writing doesn't set you up for the boss to be the hero no. there is no other hero character i mean again there's only like three people in this world if we were to remake this movie today i think the emphasis would be much more on gina davis's character to be the hero of the story which she at the end she kind of is because she is the one who who does the the final killing but you could you could remake this into a much better feminist survival story than what's what than the 80s white knight right right well because she's the love struck victim through much of the movie mm-hmm. and then at the end then she has to you know fight for herself which probably for that era the fact that she actually did step up and finish him off i guess is probably progressive at the time but you know it could have been worse we know that yeah it, <laughs> it, it could have been worse but you know it's the ending is very uneven yeah the, there's no through line on any of the character arcs to get you there. It's just like, okay, it's time to have this ending. Yeah, yeah. And and these are the beats that happen. Yeah, we're we're running out of time, budget, and money. We need to finish this off, and we've got a really cool set piece we need to use. So let's get everybody in here and let's um, let's do some more gross stuff. Let's do some more explosions, and let's figure the worst possible ending for the fly. Yeah. They, they followed the checklist and hit every one of them. I guess if we want to talk about a few other things that are upsetting or disturbing at all, we can talk a little bit about monkeys. <laughs> oh, the poor monkeys. Yeah. I saw a thing on the special effects. This is back when like entertainment television shows existed and they would do a story, quote unquote, mm-hmm. 
about like, you know, the special effects in this movie are getting all this garnering all this attention. They always had to use the word garnering. And they covered the monkey thing and they did a quick flash of it even on TV. So they kind of gave away the gag. I knew that was coming. And I'm just like, I felt worse for the monkeys than any of the humans in that poor yeah. you know, in that movie. Yeah. I, I can go with you on that. When the second monkey jumps out after he makes it through the teleportation and he jumps up and gives Jeff Goldblum a hug, I was saying, no, no, don't like this guy. Did you see what he did to his, your buddy? Did you see what he tried yep. to do to you? No, he's not a good guy. No, don't do that. Yep. He turned your buddy into soup. So, <laughs> yeah. you know. But it's one of those, I mean, the, again, the, those were the moments that were effective. Yeah. You know, it's like that kind of visceral. I mean, this, there's a practical thing that's really gross looking and kind of wet. That is the result of the failed teleportation of the monkey. And, I, and it's interesting. I'm like, what, what is his monkey budget in this movie? Like, where is he getting the monkey budget? Where is he getting the monkeys? How is he feeding the monkeys? <laughs> How does he pay his power bill? There's a whole bunch of this movie they don't really bother they with. They waft by that at one point in time when they say um, he is getting funding from this one group. I think it was called F-13. And, and they give him a budget and he's doing like piecemeal work here and here and here. And yeah, the paper trail that he has amassed has got to be incredible. We don't get it from him, but apparently he is a genius on really working the system and getting people to pay for everything in his life. And he is my hero for that. Yeah, because apparently whatever whatever organization put up the money didn't really care about results. No. They were just like, all right, we're going to throw a bunch of money at you. We'll leave you alone. And that was the extent of their plan. Yeah, he, must be, they, he must they, be a ta tax write-up for them or something. I don't know. Cause, <laughs> <woo. laughs> yeah, it's uh, some of the practical moments of the movie. You're just like, I don't, I don't think. you know. But it's, again, if you go back to a lot of these gothic horror stories, the mad scientist is always wealthy. Yeah. He, he's just wealthy. Yeah. He's just got money. So it, it, he can hang out either in his laboratory or in his castle or in his laboratory, in his castle, and experiment to his heart's content. If you can take money out of the equation and just give the brilliant scientist the means for him to do what he wants to do, you're going to get the story you want. If you have to get into him, you know, scrimping and, and trying to save for every little test tube and beaker he's going to use, story's going to get boring real fast. So oh, we wave oh, hand our, our, we wave our hand away from it. Of course. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As we're kind of wrapping up here, is there anything else you really want to touch on or talk about about this film before we get into rating it? Mm, no, no, no big final thoughts come to mind. So I, I guess the only thing I, the only last thing I would think about is um, the entire final fight scene and the budget with we kind of talked on a little bit, but he, he throws up on the guy's foot and arm. She pulls off his jaw. They went all out on, on the gross and gore on that final, final bit. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the movie has too much Cronenberg in it to appeal to a general audience or a mass audience, sure. but it also panders to that audience probably a little too much for some of his purest fan. I would suspect, I don't know, actually I've done zero research on that. So that is an, Entirely unfounded supposition. That's okay. That we, we live on that over here at the Long Box Crusade. The only other thing I would think about is comparing this to a slasher film, because this is not a slasher film, but slasher films are, are at this point in time during the mid 80s, that was how you appealed to the mass market audience is with the Freddies, the Jasons, the Michaels. And they were celebrities by this yes. point. Like they they were doing like they were doing video DJ work and Saturday morning cartoon hosting and things like that. You are not wrong. 
<laughs> but you have the difference between those ones and this one is getting into that body horror, getting into that more Cronenberg type of style. I think you're right on that question of where can you go into the mass market audience with a body horror film that is not going to gross out or, or completely alienate your audience that the slasher films with their obviously fake blood can appeal, can actually do the appealing to that audience. Yeah. And we saw them resurge uh, in the nineties, of course, with the scream franchise, those you can, you can do a slasher movie and keep it tame enough. Audiences aren't put off. Once you start dabbling in body horror, people's tolerance goes down really quickly. And then other people they're like, well, that's exactly my cup of tea. Sure. Sure. All right, let me go on and ask you the big question then. How many full bags of popcorn would you give this film? Once again, it's one to five. We don't do halvesies here. Five being the best, one being the worst. Where does this rank on your personal internal scale? I think for me, this is basically going to land at a two. Okay. Less of the movie works for me overall than actually does work for me. There are moments I enjoyed, but by and large, it was the movie felt a bit of a slog for me to get through. Yeah. I can see that. I can see that. I was, I've been kind of wavering between the two and the three myself. I think I'm going to more land on a three because unlike you, I did enjoy Jeff Goldblum. And, and like you said, it's a personal choice. I really enjoyed Jeff Goldblum's role in that. I, I do agree with you that the writing in it and the characterization is really tough. But this is a pretty straight of the road, middle of the ground three for me. But I'm leaning more on the two side of that three than the four. So I'm I'm close with you on that one. Well, and I think it's just at this point we're we're just it's degrees of enjoyment. Yeah, yeah. It'd be funny if we were, you know, I was at a one and you were at a five or something like that, if we were markedly apart. I think for people who like Cronenberg, definitely check it out. If you like body horror, definitely check it out. If you think you're a horror fan, you know, give this movie a shot. It's it's a classic. Yeah. Uh, you know, for a reason, but not every classic works. Not all cylinders are firing on every movie that's considered a classic. Uh, this one is kind of a classic because it was probably for the 80s, the biggest body horror movie there was. Yeah. I think it also is a classic because it does have the legacy element as well, which is another call out that if you get a chance to check out the original, was it 1950s fly? That's another one that's interesting to check out as a relic of its time because this is the old school type of horror black and white horror very cheap special effects very cheap film it's interesting to look at it as the seeds from where this film came from and just the ideas of what was horror and scary back in that time and how effective it was because realistically the idea behind the fly is terrifying you know here we are trying to expand ourselves, go beyond where we as human race are into technology, and we make a mistake. And that mistake injures us on a cellular physical level. And how do we respond to that? What what happens then? Having that, that idea and thought back in the 50s, which that was really what horror was, is are we going too fast with technology? And taking that germ of an idea and bring it up to the 80s, bravo for them. Oh, yeah. You know what? I, I think Star Trek really hit on an elegant solution for all these problems. Just no insects. Yeah. They really they really took care of that. They're using teleporters left and right. You know, thank God that, that whatever they use to keep the insects away really works. And on that wonderful note, let me go ahead and wrap up the show. Normally, I would give my guest an opportunity to plug where you can find him. But Matt is perfectly fine hiding in his own little cocoon of reality as he metamorphs in his own brundle fly. You can find me on Twitter at Jeff and Rick Presents or on my other podcast, Unpacking the Power of Power Pack, which I host with my personal brundle monkey, 
Jeff. If you would like to be on the show, please feel free to contact me. You can reach me at Jeff and Rick present all one word at gmail.com. And a big thank you once again to the Longbox Crusade Network for letting me use this wonderful attic of their headquarters to broadcast their show. And to their sponsor, Omaha Bound. Now, right now, Omaha Bound is not actually doing their binding. They are taking a year break off. But you can still go on their site and buy certain of their products. When they come back, people at this network will let you know what you can do with Omaha Bound. Get all of your nice horror comics bound up and presented in a nice, cool way. And I would also like to thank the Longbox Crusade members who help support this network. If you would like to support them, please head on over to Patreon and search for Longbox Crusade. That's all the time we have for you today. Grab some popcorn, pull up a seat. We will be back real soon with another episode. The music for this episode is Fall Back by musical genius Joe November. Check out his SoundCloud at josephlin 99 That's J-O-S-E-F-L-I-N-9-9. 